Hi, beautiful listeners. Welcome to the Teacher Healer podcast, where we get to geek out on all things education and heal the world at the same time. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Julie Schmidt-Hassan, author, educator, story collector, and speaker. Listen to us talk about how important relationships with students are in creating safe classrooms and how to care for our own safety as teachers. Julie is a professor in the Wright College of Education at Appalachian State University and a former teacher and school principal. Her research on the impact of a teacher is the topic of a TEDx talk and the focus of her engaging professional development programs. She founded the Chalk and Chances Project and recently released her new book, Safe, Seen and Stretched in the Classroom. Hi, Julie. Thanks for joining me on the Teach Healer podcast today. How are you? I'm well. I'm so happy to be here and talk with you about something that's so important to both of us. I'm really happy to have you um, join us as well. What a privilege. Um, And you've recently released a book. Is that right? That's right. It came out the end of November, Safe, Seen and Stretched in the Classroom. Excellent. So I was wondering just to help the audience get to know you a little bit better. um, Do you want to share a little bit about your research and uh, some of the content of the book? Sure. I'm a professor in school administration at Appalachian State University here in North Carolina in the United States. So I teach graduate students in school leadership, but I also do research about the impact of educators in our schools. And I've been doing this project for about four years. I've interviewed 412 people now about the teachers who made a positive impact on their lives. And usually when I ask them about those teachers, they answer in a story. So all of those 412 stories have been sorted into common themes And the same themes come up over and over again when people talk about the teachers who positively impacted their lives. They always talk about the way they felt in those classrooms. And over and over again, they talk about feeling safe and seen and stretched. And I have not found an exception to those themes yet. So in my work and in the book, I've pulled in the stories that represent some of those themes talked about the teacher actions that help students feel that way and then what the bigger context, what the research says about the things that contribute to helping kids feel safe, seen, and stretched. That's awesome. So out of all that research, um, has there been some lessons that have come out of that that are, I guess, are really practical tips for teachers in terms of uh, what to do if you want to be that teacher that inspires those students that they remember for years to come? Absolutely. And it's probably not surprising, especially for our experienced teachers. It's all about making the effort to connect with kids and communicating high expectations of kids. So it's both connecting and expecting. And in connection, it's it's really small moments that tend to stick. So we think the things kids remember about school may be these big 
projects and kind of unusual experiences, but they're not. They're small moments when a teacher made them feel noticed and important. And John Gottman's work on bids for connection is a great strategy. So he talks about all the times that the people around us send us these bids that they want to connect, which could be very subtle, a facial expression, a gesture, or could be very overt, you know, someone saying, can I talk with you? And as teachers, even as parents, as spouses, as friends, we have three different ways we can respond to that bid. We can turn toward the bid in a really positive, affirming way, notice it and respond to it. So have the conversation, ask what's wrong, offer to help, you know, in some kind of caring response. We can turn against that bid, which is really being sort of um, aggressive or dismissive or any of the things we do that make people feel unworthy, unwelcome, uncared for. Mm. Or most of the time what happens is we just turn away. We ignore the bid. And I don't think teachers, educators, parents ever do that on purpose, but we're so busy and preoccupied sometimes that we don't notice that a student is sending that bid and wanting to connect. So the more often we can be really present and notice the students in front of us and notice when they're sending a bid for connection and respond by turning toward in a positive, caring way, the stronger those relationships will be and the more worthy those students will feel. That is such a beautiful way of putting it. And it's so practical in like all of life, isn't it? Like when you're dealing with your family and your relationships and your colleagues, anything, isn't it? When someone, I guess, reaches out and I I guess it's about how we then accept and and respond. I love that. I love that idea. Um, I was, I was having a look at your Chalk and Chances webpage and you've collected some great stories there and there's opportunity for um, teachers to put in or anyone to put in their memories of their teachers. Is that right? Is that still running? Yeah. It is. Anyone can yeah. submit a story and add to the data. Um, and all the stories that come through there help us better understand as part of this research what teachers do to make an impact. And is that from anywhere in the world that people can submit their story? Yes, we've gotten them from all over the world. So on the chalkandchances.com website, there's a tab, share your story. And it's an easy form for people to fill out. And some people fill it out in great detail, which is helpful. And some people just write a couple of quick things that they remember about a special teacher. But it all adds to the knowledge. It all adds to the research. Oh, I loved it. I, my, the one that stood out for me that I saw was about um, an acorn and the girls would have been young and they were collecting acorns in, in the playground and they brought them into the teacher and the teacher took the time and the effort to take those acorns and look at each one and talk about the acorns and how they have all this potential in them to be these big trees, but they go through all these trials and tribulations and about how we're all like little acorns (laughs) trying to grow and and we have to go through trials to get there. And she said she kept still kept a jar of acorns on her desk all these years later. Isn't that magic? What a story. I love that. And I always think it's such small moments that teachers likely don't remember. Like that teacher who looked at those acorns and had that sweet conversation probably wouldn't remember that. It's such a small moment. And yet this now grown woman remembers it decades later. So the things that 
our students carry and remember are such small things that we may not remember them at all, but they do. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I just found that so cute. And it's a perfect example of, you know, those girls making a bid for a, a connection and, and that being met, isn't it? And a teacher mm. just taking a little time, you know, that was probably a two minute conversation, but just to take those couple of minutes and acknowledge them and, and say those words that have stuck with her and made her feel so special and important and empowered. It is, it's a beautiful thing that teachers do when they notice and respond that way. Mm. And do you have any stories that I guess really stood out for you or touched you or made you tear up a little bit? Is there anything that that you've you've read about that just went, oh, this is a standout story. I just have to yes. share this. I mean, they uh, they all do for me. And um, my husband makes fun of me because he says my favorite is whatever the latest one is. <laughs> and that's true. <laughs> um, and the one that was put up last, so it, it'll be the first one in order on the Chalk and Chances website, was a, a man named Marcus who in high school was taking what we call here home economics. You know, we may call life skills. Um, it's that class where you do cooking and sew on a button and learn all of those important life skills. And he said they had made a batch of chocolate chip cookies. He loved the class because they cooked on Fridays. And his teacher must have noticed him. They all could eat one, but she must have noticed him slip three more in his pocket. <laughs> So she made him stay after class. And the beautiful thing she did was just ask a question. Um, are you hungry? And he was. His his father had left him and his mom, you know, a couple of months earlier. They were struggling. He was hungry. They didn't have any electricity or power at home. And so by asking a question instead of assuming or um, giving him some kind of discipline consequence, she made this big impact on him. She noticed his clothes were dirty. So in that home ec room, they had a washing machine and dryer and he would come in and you know throw his clothes in and get his clothes cleaned. And every Friday, she and the ladies at her church would put a care package of food together for him for the weekend. And he said he he would have been so hungry and so lost without Miss Pope was her name. And I love that story, just the the care that she gave this kid because she stopped to ask a question instead of just assuming that he was making bad choices or was a discipline problem. He was hungry. Oh, my goodness. And And it was just like a split second, wasn't it? Like she could have responded in any way to that situation. And most people would be like, come on now, that's not fair. Don't be stealing the cookies. <laughs> but. Right. She could but have been just so angry. Yes. Yeah. Taking it personally, Gosh. you know, all the things. And I think about all the hundreds of decisions teachers make throughout the course of a lesson or a day. And those small decisions to put aside assumptions about kids and to respond in a really caring, affirming way make an impact. You know, the fact that she pushed aside all of those other feelings and instead just asked a question and let her be someone who made this lasting impact on his life. Do you know, it makes me wonder, like, 
like it's hard to be perfect as a teacher. You listen to a story like that and you're like, gosh, that teacher was just a superhero. What kind of like human she must have been to be that tuned in to to know better. Um, but we're not all that good at doing better and knowing better. So I guess um, how do we then, I guess, be a little bit kind to ourselves, but at the same time acknowledge, you know, we're going to be responding from a place of stress sometimes and we're not going to, we're going to make mistakes. And do you have any advice for those teachers or did you have any stories come about those teachers that didn't do as well? <laughs> yes, I do. And I'm, I'm always so worried that this research will make people feel like they're not good enough or guilty about things. And, and what I've been telling the groups I talk to is these are snapshots of teachers at their best. You know, these are small mm. moments when teachers were at their best. And, you know, luckily people didn't remember them when they weren't at their best. You know, they had these <laughs> moments of caring and connection. So I try to say that, you know, these are, are snapshots in time. These are these are not saints. They're human too and surely had bad moments. But I hope that by putting them out as models, we can become more intentional in how we respond and we can start to pull lessons from the stories and do that more consistently because it's front of mind. But I did have a man tell me a story about an educator he was very connected with and who was really patient with him because as a child, he struggled with self-control and lots of behavior issues. And one day this teacher responded in a way that wasn't patient, just put him in the back of the room to sit, you know, had enough of it. And the powerful thing was the next morning, the teacher met him at the bus. They had breakfast together and apologized. And he mm. said, as a kid, he had had, a you know, some adults in his life that didn't treat him well, and no one had ever apologized to him before. And what a lesson in this teacher saying, I wasn't patient. That wasn't how I should have responded. You weren't right in your choices, but I wasn't right in my response. And I'm sorry for that. Became a model for him that you can mess up and that you just have to take responsibility and offer mm. a sincere apology. Yeah, it's funny because we often tell kids, you know, we get them to apologize, but how often do we model that? I love that. Yeah. So on like a broader perspective, I'm just wondering like because I'm running the Teacher Healer podcast, I'm interested in healing the world. <laughs> I love um, that. <laughs> what, what role do you feel like teachers have in healing our society? I think it's so important because for kids, when someone in a position of authority, like a teacher, gives them discretionary effort, that sends a powerful message that you're worthy of my time and effort. And I've heard so many people as they share these stories say, you know, your parents have to love you and, and these other people in your life have to love you. But when a teacher loves you, and they don't have to, but they choose to, you feel very special and important and worthy. And when kids have a sense of self-worth, they make better decisions. They take better care of themselves and the people around them. And I don't think we can underestimate the self-worth that comes from having a teacher care about you. So that's the secret then is just have, choosing to love. Yes. Yes. 
even when it's hard, especially when it's hard, you know, to love the kids <laughs> that are hard to love because they're the ones who are dealing with those self-worth issues often most because they're getting into trouble and they're being rejected and they're feeling unsuccessful. So as teachers, if we can love the kids who are hard to love, we can really make an impact in their lives and help them start on a a more positive, empowering trajectory. Mm, It's like it sounds so easy when I say it. You just got to love them, but (laughs) doing doing it is is harder. (laughs) And it's not just because of them. That's not because they're not lovable. It's often because teachers are just carrying their own stuff, aren't they? So I guess my next question is, what are the barriers for, for teachers and school leaders in choosing to love the kids that might challenge them? I think you said certainly one of them, which is if we're not well ourselves, then it's hard for us to heal others. And so I think if there's healing we have to do for ourselves as teachers, you know, if we're carrying pain or things that need to be dealt with, um, we we can't help other people if we are in need so much ourselves. But the other really important thing is being present enough to notice. So I know for me as a teacher, there's always like the to-do list and the chatter in my head and thinking about the next lesson and all the things that have to be done. And it gets in the way of my noticing people's needs and noticing their bids for connection. So I think some of it is just all of the things that we have to do and think about and worry about get in the way of being really there and present and noticing kids. Mm. And what do you think like the, the education system and the school systems can do to help teachers be more present and not have to worry about all the extra? I think the, at least here in the United States, the amount of initiatives and things that we're piling on teachers don't leave them space to really stop and be present and be responsive. And we're in many places over-prescribing what they have to teach, how they have to teach. You know, they get these very scripted lessons, which doesn't leave any room for responding to kids or for... um, moving in the direction of a student's interest or for taking advantage of a teachable moment. And so many of these stories are things that happened in the moment and the teacher responded in some way. And if we interfere with their ability to notice and respond, we interfere with their ability to make that kind of impact. Mm. Yeah. So like, what do you, what do, what would you change if you were in charge of education in America? What mm. what would you change first? I would first would understand that teachers are professionals, that they've been well-trained, um, that they're committed. You know, they certainly don't go into this work for selfish reasons to become rich or famous. You know, they go into this work to make an impact and they prepare really hard to be able to make that kind of impact. So I would say, let's respect their professionalism. Let's trust them. Let's give them autonomy to make choices in their classrooms. And let's recognize how hard that work is um, and how much they give to their profession. So I would say, let's just start to 
think about them as the professionals they are and give them the space they need to be professional. Mm. Have you had an opportunity to do that in your career like that you remember? And what did you do with that? I, um, when I started teaching in the 1990s, so that was quite a while ago in primary grades. So my students were um, five years old to eight years old across most of my teaching career. And at that time, we had a little more freedom so I could teach in units. You know, in the fall, we always did a unit about apples and we would do science and art and reading and all of the things sort of integrated into these units of study. And there was space for kids to explore. There was time to read aloud. There was time to share what we were learning. And I know when I talk to teachers here now who are teaching those grade levels, they don't have that space. They're, they are getting very prescribed lessons to teach that aren't integrated across curriculum. Um, one teacher told me recently that she was directed every time she did a read aloud to students, there had to be some kind of assessment that went with it, which defeats the purpose in so many ways of read aloud. You know, my favorite time with my kids was after they came back from lunch or outside time to read a chapter of a book, you know, and stop right at the moment when things were exciting and they all say, oh, you know, don't stop. <laughs> but they don't have the space for that now. Um, and I think it's it's hurting kids. It's hurting their love of learning and school and it's hurting teachers and they're losing that joy in teaching. Mm. Yeah, there's a bit of over-assessment, I think, going on there. Um, yeah. Well. I guess then, other, like other than systemic changes, because I've, I've asked you what you would change if you were in charge, but, but in general, what, what's your wish for education? I really wish every child was learning in a classroom where they felt safe, seen, and stretched, which really is every child having a really effective, caring teacher. And we're here in the United States in a critical teacher shortage we're losing them. They're quitting at a really high rate. And we don't have the numbers coming out of um, colleges of education to replace them. So often they either have substitutes or they're placed, you know, added onto classrooms of other kids and, and moved around because we just don't have the teachers to support all of the kids. Um, and I worry about that as as someone who hopes to be a grandmother one day, you know, I want my grandchildren to have the kind of teachers I had, you know, my Mrs. Russell in first grade and, and the teachers who really put me on a firm foundation and made an impact on my life. I worry that kids aren't having a Mrs. Russell like I did. Mm. What do you say to the teacher? Like, so a lot of your research, I guess, is from the perspective of the students and they're grown, they're grown up mm -hmm. and they're, they're looking back. What, what would you say to the teachers from their perspective when they walk into a classroom? And I've certainly done this in recent years where it's unruly and you, you just, you don't know even where to start with getting them settled and focused and there's gaming addictions and there's all sorts of things happening in there. What's your advice to the teachers who are battling with all those things thinking, well, I'd give them all that if I had a chance? 
Yes. It's so hard. I did a project with a group of teacher leaders who were wanting to be school principals. And we spent a semester and they targeted two students in all of their classes that were the most disruptive and difficult. And we would focus on building trust first. You know, there are strategies for building trust with with the students. And then we would focus on noticing and responding to bids for connection as much as we could. We would focus on goal setting with those difficult students. What were their dreams? What were their hopes? What goals did they want to achieve? And how can we support them? And so it really was building relationships. And I wish I knew a shortcut to that. (laughs) But the answer really is spending the time and energy in relationships. Because once they trust us and they love us, the most difficult kids will be our strongest supporters. You know, the, the kid that really challenges you over time when you build that relationship will be the one who turns to all the others and says, our teacher is talking, you know, you need to quiet down. (laughs) It's getting them on our side, but there's no easy path or shortcut to that. It's, it's building relationships and it's trying sometimes. Yeah, I I actually remember being taught that at uni. Um, (laughs) And I think it was in my master's, not in my teacher training. But but there was this sense of, you know, if you can win over those kids that create your biggest challenges and they become advocates for you, then the whole class will go with them. Um, And I find it I find it challenging because I want to do that and they're in greatest need of that that love and connection. But I also feel for the kids who are skating along, um, and doing the right thing. And they, they kind of get under the radar. And I'm, I'm curious to hear about your research and whether you spoke to any of those students who were the, the bright ones who didn't need the extra attention. Did they still have those same key memories about safe, seen and stretched? They did in different ways. And one of the things that It's important for us as teachers to remember is how we treat the difficult kids in our class has an impact on all of the kids. So if we can still handle a challenging student with love and respect, it makes everybody feel safer. So even if I'm not the student that is disobeying or creating a disruption, the way my teacher treats the one who is says something to me about how safe it is to be in this classroom. And they want everyone treated with respect and they want their teachers to maintain that sense of personal peace and calm because that's what creates a sense of safety and trust. So there have been times people have told me about a story, um, a situation in which a teacher was dealing with another student, but they remember the way the teacher dealt with that student. And I think that's important to know. But the other thing is for for kids who do feel safe and seen and have a sense of self-worth, the stretched is very important. So finding ways to pick up on what interests them, give them some project-based learning to do, let them teach others the things they know. Um, For those guys, we have to think about how do we stretch them? They still need to make gains and grow, even if they've mastered a lot of what we're teaching the rest of the class. Yeah. And like differentiation is one of those, it's one of those teacher challenges, but, but I know I've done, we've done some research in my workplace where 
teachers really recognize that that's a key component of their job is is meeting the needs of the kids who are struggling and the needs of the kids who find it too easy so that's positive um even though they sometimes feel like they need some support in doing that um i'm just like where i'm just wondering like where you feel like parents fit in with this mix here. Um, so we've talked a lot about students and behavior and how they respond to teachers and what they remember. We've talked about teachers and how they can do better. How do parents fit into this triangle? Ideally, parents and teachers are partners. And if we have the mm. same goal, we want kids to reach their potential. We want them to love learning. We want them to to be on a path towards success. Many of the stories I hear are from people who were not well-parented as kids because of addiction um, or abuse or just people who weren't well-equipped at that point to parent. And in that case, a teacher makes such an enormous difference in their lives because a teacher can step in and guide in a way and love and provide that sense of safety and worth. But even for those of us who were blessed and well-parented, a teacher loving and investing in us is just icing on the cake. You know, Mm -hmm. we could never love kids enough collectively. Yeah, they just, they need as much as they can, can hold, isn't it? It's true. And I know you and I talked about a teacher who provided that kind of love and guidance for you. And so I'm wondering if you might talk a little bit about your music teacher. Oh, yeah, I would actually. Um, So my music teacher in school was because it because it's music you sort of have them year after year it's not like you just have an English teacher for one year so there was a long-term relationship built there over time and um I remember her one day just pulling me aside in the corridor I think I was probably in year eight um Mm -hmm. like 13 or 14 and and she just she just put her hand on my arm and said are you okay and I looked at her and I'm like, oh, yeah, everything's good because I was really, really good at faking it. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And she just sort of looked at me again and said, no, really, are you okay? And at the time I hadn't really talked about it with anyone at school, but but my parents were sort of not talking to each other. It was pro- just a couple of years before their divorce and um, it was a bit tense at home. So I was doing everything I could to sort of be out of the home and going to band rehearsals as, as late as, as I could on as many nights as I could of the week. And she must have seen that a change in me and um just sort of saw through me pretending and um and I remember as well um you know I had a lot of trouble talking about it I would I would well up with tears so she was like look if you can't talk about it that's cool write me a letter and so I did I wrote her a few letters and she'd chat to me about them and um she didn't write letters back. Um, but it was, it was just really lovely to learn how to express myself that way. And I remember she said to me one day, a trouble shared is a trouble halved. And that's something, it's like a bit of a mantra, you know, because I think people can feel like they, they bottle things up quite a bit, but it was just lovely to have her support there. I know that when she left, it was partway through my final year, second to final year. And, um, it was, it was devastating. It was like losing a family member for me. But, um, 
yeah, she became a bit of a, a sister, older sister kind of figure for me. And it, it was really lovely just to know that I could go to school and I'd have that person there. Um, and, you know, one day I remember actually my dad was diagnosed with cancer. I didn't tell you this um, before, but no. um, I was I was just before she left the school actually and I just went to her office straight first thing in the morning and said this has happened and I burst into tears and she just said, have some quiet time in my office. I have to go to homeroom. I'll write a letter um, to your homeroom teacher just to let them know that what's happened and that you've been with me and we're going to help you out. And, you know, she got me referred to counselling and everything. And it was just so important at that time for me to have that backup um, because it was literally three weeks after my dad had moved out. So mum wasn't being super keen on him at the time and, so she wasn't able and she was very, very down herself. She wasn't able to reach out and get that help for me. So, yeah, she played a massive role in my life, my music teacher, and I'll be forever grateful. Yeah. I love, I love that she was there for you, that she noticed that you yeah. needed someone and something. And, and I also love that you still use those lessons, like writing about your feelings is such a good tool or you know, talking to someone when you're struggling, that she taught you these things that continue to be useful lessons in your life. And that's one of the things I'm finding in this research is that they teach these what seem like small lessons, but they become important parts of people's lives forever and ever. You know, we continue to use that lesson and think about that lesson. Mm, Yeah. I know I know for her as well that she was she was in her 20s at the time and I think that teaching became very hard for her I think it was a very emotional role um and I think the teachers who are doing that connecting with the kids sometimes they find themselves overwhelmed with what they're encountering um and like I guess I'm asking you not as a researcher now but as a school principal and an experienced teacher and a professor do you have advice for teachers and how to cope with some of those things when you do build relationships with kids there's risks then isn't it you can get hurt yourself um and sometimes carrying the burden of you know finding out about abuse and dealing with them dealing with sick family members and depression and suicidal feelings and all of the range that of things that happen for teenagers um do you have any advice for teachers in dealing with with that feeling of overwhelm it's so hard and teaching is such a vulnerable thing like you said you you bring yourself in connection with someone else and it's messy and it's human and it's hard. Um, Mm -hmm. And teachers tend to be very empathetic and take on all of that weight, you know, that, that their students are carrying. I worked for a principal once who was so lovely and beautiful and we had to go across a bridge to get home from the school. And she would say, we don't carry it across the bridge with us. Like it has to stay at school. We can't carry it home to our families or we can't carry it home and, and let it keep us up at night because then we can't do the work we need to do. So finding ways to leave it at school and not carry all of that pain and concern and worry with us to our own homes is really important. And whatever strategy helps teachers do that, I think is useful for some of them. It's a workout, you know, a a jog or a walk right after school before they get home. For some, it's the music they listen to on the way home or, you know, just pausing for a bit and having a few minutes of quiet before they walk into their homes, whatever works to help 
you leave it behind. You can't carry it with you all the time. Mm, yeah, it kind of reminds me of um, I was looking into anger recently for for a research project, and they were talking about discharging the battery. You know that mm. that as things build up in you, I guess. It can be anger, it can be depression, whatever, but it's like a car battery that's filling up, filling up, filling up, and, and at some point it's going to start sparking off and exploding out. <laughs> so how do you, yeah, it's about discharging, isn't it, and finding ways to just get some of that energy through and out of your system. So I guess it's a similar kind of thing you're talking about yes. there. And I think it's very individual. You know, you have to find what works for you. If it's meditating, if it's exercise, if, you know, if it's an, it, an art um, that you like to practice, whatever it is, talking with another teacher. Um, you know, my husband is an educator, so sometimes we just have to take a few minutes and both talk about what we're worried about with our students, and then we can move on and kind of let that go. So find a circle of support, find the strategies that work for you, but don't carry it um, and don't lay awake at night worrying about it because then we start to sacrifice and we see it all the time in teachers. We sacrifice our own health and well-being. Yeah. It's interesting because like we've got some teacher strikes happening in Australia at the moment around paying conditions and having too much administration work and various things. And that's what I feel the union's focusing on because that's what they can control. But, but I wonder how much of the teacher's teachers quitting and teacher overwhelm is due to the emotional burden of the job rather than the administrative burden. Um, do you have a take on that? I think you're absolutely right. You know, we've always had these issues of pay and conditions to some extent, but I feel the emotional overwhelm from teachers more now than I ever have. Some of it I think is probably related to COVID. Everybody's resilience is a little low and it's added so much stress to our lives and isolation at times. And our teachers have been teaching remotely and face-to-face and sometimes both at the same time and worrying about what are the rules for masking and, and having other teachers have to be isolated, you know, all of, the, all of the COVID things. I think that has exacerbated that emotional toll and the stress in teaching. But the disrespect I know here, um, the disrespect that they're feeling has made it harder also because when you're giving so much and you're not feeling appreciated for the important and difficult work you're doing and it's sometimes feeling disrespected for it uh, has to take a toll on teachers. Mm. Yeah, I just like, I feel like it's a bit of a, a self-fulfilling prophecy sometimes because there's, you know, you feel a bit of disrespect from teachers and sorry, from parents and students sometimes, but then at the same time, you might be more likely to snap or lash out or do a bit, do not as good a job as you might usually because you're sick of it or whatever else. But then at the same time, if you do decide to step up, then you feel like a doormat because you're still getting the disrespect. How, how do we, get out of that cycle like how like is is that connection piece is that the secret to stepping out of that cycle and earning that respect like what do you think you know I think for me I always wonder when something is really concerning what can I do about it in my 
limited little you know, world here in the mountains. What can I do to help? And for me, sharing these stories is a small way to remind people of how important teachers are and remind them of the teachers in their lives. And I talked to someone here in the state of North Carolina who is the liaison between um, our state superintendent over schools and the legislature who's making policies. And we talked about how we might need to remind the people making policies about their favorite teachers. Um, Instead of this sort of general notion of what teachers are and who they are, let's think about specific teachers in our lives. And when we make a policy or when we create some kind of legislation that impacts them, let's make that based on those best teachers. Is that something that would help or hurt the best teachers we've had? So for me, sharing the stories and advocating is a small thing I can do. But if we all think about where we are and what we have and what we can do to better support teachers, I think we could make some gains. Do you know what? I think you're so right. I, I was scrolling through LinkedIn the other day and um, up on my feed came a research report on teacher quality and what that means. And it gives me the heebie-jeebies, that term, <laughs> um, because I'm like, oh, you're trying to quantify and categorize a, a human being. And I think what you're doing is so great, bringing the human and the story back into how we see teachers. I, yeah, I think we've become, we've started to look at teachers as a machine now. And actually, I'm sorry, education isn't motorized just yet. We're, we're not fully digital. We're not AI. <laughs> we have feelings. Yeah. Um, so I think it's really great. And thank you so, so much for putting that humanity back into teaching with your work. And I really hope that your book flies off those shelves um, and and starts to make an impact to people's hearts um, in the way that I know you hope it will. Well, thank you for this conversation and for promoting healing in classrooms and for teachers. I think you and I are definitely two souls on the same journey. And I always love to talk with you about teaching and kids and how important this work is. Yeah. Thanks so much, Julie. And I will see you soon. Thanks for listening to the Teacher Healer podcast. Find more episodes and information at www.teacherhealer.com. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please rate us or refer us to your friends and colleagues. And if you care about saving the world from plastic, click on the Zero Co link in the show notes to learn what you can do to help.